Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck nicks? What the fucksters? This is Mark Marin. Uh, this is WTF. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. I just realize sometimes when I do that, how, what the fuckers? What the fuck? You know, like, I, I mean, I've been doing that a long time, and uh, there are moments where I'm like, wow, that just, I just annoyed myself. But, but I keep doing it because it's a signature thing. I mean, if I started taking away all the little things that I do on a regular basis, what am I left with? If I take away all the ticks and habits and uh, recurring bits of business that I've been doing most of my life, or at least my life, public life on this show, what have we got? You know what I mean? We don't want you guys. Those things protect all of us from what's inside me. <laughs> you you got to have your ticks and habits and idiosyncrasies and repetitions just so you don't fall apart. So today on the show, music producer and musician Don Was. Don Was, you would know. You would see Don Was. You know what Don Was is. You know who he is. Was not was, was his band. Uh, but he's also a prolific producer. And now he's the, uh, he's the president of Blue Note Records and doing some cool things over there. But this was a good conversation because he's worked with the Stones exclusively uh, a lot. I don't know, not exclusively. Why do you even use that word? But but he produced the last one, Blue and Lonesome, and he's worked with the Stones before, and I'm a Stones person, so I'm just giving you Stones people a head up that there's some good chat about producing the Rolling Stones and also about working with the Stones, but there's also some good talk about uh, remastering and stuff. It's a music talk. But I, I was engaged, and I like it, and I like seeing him in my garage because he was always, he's always one of those guys, a bass player generally, and you kind of see him in backing bands here and there over the years. He's got these dreads and this little beard, and he usually wears sunglasses and a hat, and you're like, there's that guy, and I talked to that guy, and he's done a lot of stuff, and it was kind of a, a great talk. So that's happening. That's happening today momentarily, all right? I do want to tell you about my experience at the SAG Awards, if you didn't... Well, I mean, what you can only watch so much. But first, out of the gate here, some guy called me out here in an email. Subject line, Radio Shack? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Hi, Mark. Uh, going to Radio Shack to acquire the parts to fix your cable re- will require a time machine. I could tell you how to build said time machine, but it will require a parts list from Radio Shack. Good luck. Love the show. I hope the transition to your new home goes smoothly uh, from here on out. Sincerely, Bowser. Uh, yeah, I did say I was going to Radio Shack on the last show. And not only did I say I was going to go, I went to where the Radio Shack was, knowing in my brain that all the Radio Shacks are gone, but seemingly some part of me unwilling to accept 
that all Radio Shacks are gone. You, you didn't go to Radio Shack much, and a lot of times what you bought there was relatively disposable because you'd buy too many of them because you're trying to fix something yourself uh, or, or whatever. Uh, but but it was a sort of a, a, a constant. But uh, the Radio Shack is gone. And if you want to get that stuff day of, you know, it's hard. You can get it day after on Amazon, I guess. I guess everything happens quicker. But what happened to the journey? What happened to the journey, folks? That's what we're missing now. Is that, you know, I got to get a thing. I got to see what store has it. Where is that place? Are they open? Uh, let's drive over there. Maybe we'll get something to eat on the way. Oh, shit, it's not here. But look, there's this store. I wonder what's in this place. Remember that? Remember getting out in the world and doing things? Remember where, you know, uh, a sort of a shopping rabbit hole could actually require a car? You just go and you're like, God, oh, we passed a place. It looks like it might have that. Let's go there. Holy shit. I didn't even know this was here. Did you know this whole thing? What happened to that? Gone. Human engagement with the outside world. Gone. Sad. And I'm not grieving for Radio Shack. And then there was that brief time where they tried to call it the hut. or Oh, no. Radio hut? No, the shack. Where are you going? Go in the shack. Pick up a plug. <laughs> they tried to hipsterize Radio Shack to save it. Let's go down to the shack. Get some batteries. Let's hang out at the shack. I'm going to get some uh, blank cassette tapes at the shack. See, again, I used to go to, I used to go down there, get blank cassette tapes. They had the Memorex brand, the Ultras, and the High Tech, and then they had the Radio Shack brand. Oh, boy. Back in the day, used to go out, drive. I did, some, I did do some uh, driving to do a thing today for Lori Metcalf. There's a, there's a deep, uh, there's, there's a tease for you. What is that? What's that story about? Uh, maybe I'll tell you. All right. So what was I saying? Oh, the SAG Awards were very exciting. They were very fun. As some of you know, uh, I lost. I was not expecting to win. I, you know, I was up against, you know, William Macy who won. Come on. And there were other people too, but I wasn't expecting to win. I was just, I was actually excited to be nominated and to be at this thing. So many of the people have been on this show, but it's all actors and it's almost like a community event. They, these awards were decided by the community of actors. They were voted on by actors and it's an actors event. Uh, there, there's a lot of celebrities there, sure, but it's, it's, it doesn't feel like a, like a, a, a business event or a producer's event or an agent's event or a critic's event. It's just a room full of actors and people who are related and connected to these actors. And it was very exciting. Because uh, I like looking at celebrities. Everyone knows that. But I, I did, I got to be honest with you, and it's not, I'm not tooting my own, own horn. I was happy to be there with a purpose. I felt part of something. Glow was nominated for ensemble and stunt work, and I was nominated for best male actor in a comedy, and uh, Allison was nominated for best female actor in a comedy. So it was very exciting. We were all at the table, and uh, right behind me, Susan Sarandon was sitting next to Gina Davis. Um, I saw Lori Metcalf was over at the Ladybird table, and so was Greta Gerwig and Tracy Letts, who I interviewed, who will be on the show soon, uh, who I love, Tracy Letts. It's a funny story about Tracy Letts. I don't know if I'll tell it now or, or when his episode is on, but, uh, it, but it, everyone was there. Everyone was there. And, you know, I said hi to Susan Sarandon. She's been on the show. We had a little chat, said hi to Greta Gerwig. Like, I felt okay saying hi to these people. I didn't feel okay for some reason at the Critics' Choice because I thought, well, who am I? Do you know what I mean? Even though I was nominated, I don't know. It's, it's not humility. It's just insecurity. But uh, for some reason in this room, 
I was very excited to say hi to everybody, and I didn't. I met some people. I saw some old friends. Saw Matt Walsh over there. Veep won for uh, Best Ensemble. Beat us, but I was happy to see Matt. Hadn't seen him in a while. I saw um, Sam Rockwell. He's been on the show. He knew he's winning everything. It's great. He was sitting at the next table over with the three billboards table. Uh, he gave me a big hug. I gave him a big hug. Congratulated him. The first joke or the second joke that Kristen Bell made was about Glow and about my podcast, and it got a big laugh. Again, I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm just, I feel like, uh, I feel like I was there because I belonged, not because I was a guy that just interviewed people. It was, uh, it was exciting. It was fun. I liked, I, I liked seeing everybody, and I liked that they, that they knew me. And I liked that not only did they know me because they'd been in my garage, but they knew me because, you know, I was nominated for a thing. I don't know why I don't think that, uh, I, I don't, whatever. My, I wore my suit, I went with Sarah the painter, and I felt part of, part of, man, part of a community. I'm, a, I'm part of the community of comics, which I've always been. Last night, I was behind the comedy store hanging out with Bill Burr, smoking a cigar with some old pals from the Boston days, Jackie Flynn and Al Ducharme, just hanging out, telling stories, holding a little court with Burr. And the cigars and the Boston guys, the comedy, the rogues and gypsies of the comedy world are really my family, but it was nice to be in the acting world. Well, here's what, a, here's what happens. Outside of having a joke made about me, which I found very flattering, and chatting with uh, different people, Jason Bateman, I, I ran into him. He was very nice. He, and I ran into Jordan Peele, congratulated him. But I will tell you this story. So we're all hanging out at my table, the glow table. There's two tables, a table and a half of glow. And people have to kind of move through the room. There's thin little in between tables. There's there's a little there's not there's not a lot of a lot of room. And then like all of a sudden I'm standing up and I see uh, Francis McDormand and a few people moving towards me. They need to get by me because I'm at the head of the table. They need to walk behind me and I'm standing up. It's on a break or it's before the show starts. And she's coming right at me. And I'm a big fan. And I, I respect her a great deal. And uh, I, I, I've always wanted to have her on the show. I was just going to step out of her way. And then I thought, like, just introduce yourself, man. So she's walking right towards me to get around me with all these people. And I said, uh, hi, Francis, I'm, and she goes, I know who you are, Mark Marin. I know who you are. And I'm like, oh, uh, okay. She goes, you were great on GLOW. You were great. I thought it was, a, I, didn't, I don't usually watch things, but I started watching it and I watched it and you were great. I mean, everyone knows that guy. Everyone's known one of those guys. So like on some level, she liked Glow. She thought I was great in it as an actor. So I won. I won at the SAG Awards. I won. Frances McDormand uh, made me a winner. I, and I'd love to have her on the show. And Willem Dafoe actually uh, uh, you know, chatted with me this time. Like that, Remember I said at the, at the Critics' Choice, I thought like maybe he didn't. I didn't think he registered. But we had a nice chat on the red carpet waiting to get pictures taken. I'm still a little bit of a who's this guy, but that's all right. You look, I, I'm completely... I'm. I'm I'm way ahead. It's all gravy. I didn't anticipate any of this, and and uh, it was a it was a good time. It was a really good time. I'll tell you. Oh, I want to, <laughs> I want to tell you this. So Robert De Niro's there, right? After the SAG Awards, you go basically next door to a bigger to another room where they have the party, and uh, you kind of move in through you know this one door, and then there's there's separate areas. There's like booths and there's food and whatever. So I walk in with Sarah and like Robert De Niro's just sitting on a couch there, uh, you know, talking to another guy, and I'm like, oh my god, this is Robert De Niro, and Sarah's like, you should go introduce yourself. I'm like, no, what am I? Gonna, I'm not gonna what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna interrupt Robert De Niro to do what? 
What am I really like? What am I going to... No, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to introduce myself to Robert De Niro or tell him he's... Whatever. I just... It didn't feel right. And then I walk about another 10 feet. I'm like, all right. I, yeah, okay. Maybe maybe I should go uh, introduce myself to Robert De Niro. I don't know what I'm going to say, but I figure I'll, I'll, maybe I'll go try. So I'm walking back to where Robert De Niro... He's sitting down at a little couch... It's a circular, it's around a, a pillar kind of thing. And there's a lot of people around, yeah, but everyone's moving. But he's just sort of there talking to another guy. And I'm walking towards Robert De Niro. And then I see a guy, maybe like five to 10 feet away, just standing there by himself. Uh, a dude just standing there, just, you know, not talking to anybody, big guy. And he looks at me and I look at him. And he, and he, you know, he, no, he not acknowledges me. So I walk over and he introduces himself as this guy, Chris Sullivan from uh, This Is Us. He said he was a fan of my work or whatever, and he's just standing there. and And then I realized I'm like, "Are you are you waiting to try to say hi to Robert De Niro?" He's like, "Yeah, kind of." And I'm like, "Oh, I, I didn't realize there was a line." He's like, "How? What are you going to do?" He's like, "Well, I'm just going to wait for my window. You know, there's a wait for my." <laughs> and I'm like, "I was going to do that too, but I think I'm going to keep moving because I don't really think we should." It was just such an awkward thing. I'm like, "You go ahead and do it. I'll do it another time. Maybe another event." I don't. You don't. You didn't want to be a, a line of people trying to act nonchalant. You know, six feet away from where Robert Nero is talking to a friend of his. It's just like you know, a growing mass of people. Me, some other guy, another guy steps up. It's like, yeah, we're kind of, we're kind of waiting. <laughs> Not even talking to each other, just kind of like acting like nothing's going on. So, needless to say, I did not meet Robert De Niro. I hope Chris did. So, uh, maybe maybe he'll let me know. So, anyways, okay, let's get on with it. I'll remind me to tell the Tracy Lett story. How, how are you going to remind me? You're the listener. I'll tell it when he's on because it was kind of funny, but it ties into something he said at the end of his conversation with me. Anyways, Lori Metcalf left her hoodie here. Her Steppenwolf hoodie. So I had to go out into the world because uh, she needed it. She went to New York to do a play and they were going to do a photo shoot and she needed it to do. They wanted her to wear a thing and uh, it's her favorite hoodie. So I went down to the post office and I overnighted uh, uh, Lori Metcalf her hoodie. I got out in the world. You people think that I'm, I'm a yeah, mid-level celebrity. I don't have people running around doing things like that and I like to do it. I'm just supportive of getting out in the world to do mundane errands, uh, you know, buy things, whatever. Oh, you're probably going like, why didn't she use stamps? Why didn't she use the stamps? Why didn't she use the stamps for the overnight? Don't call me out on the stamps.com. I need to, I need to do, it need to be there tomorrow. So Lori could have her hoodie. Anyway, Don was. I enjoy this conversation. It's a music conversation. As I said, you may know him from the guy with the hat and the dreadlocks and the beard and the sunglasses. He was in Was Not Was. Uh, he was. He's a big uh, music producer. He's a bass player, and now he's the president of Blue Note Records. Uh, and they've uh, just launched this Blue Note Review Volume One: Peace, Love, and Fishing. This is a. It's a box set subscription series. And it's limited to a production of 1,500 sets. You can get it at bluenotereview.com. So volume one just came out. I think they're going to come out twice a year. I got it. It's a beautiful box. It's got a a reissue of a Blue Note record. It's got uh, a new record of live performances. This one had uh, different ones. It's got some other stuff in it, some pictures, uh, a scarf. Yeah. It's Anyway, we'll talk about it. 
This is me and Don. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Buzz. So you're 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 Don Was. You're the guy. I'm a guy. Yeah. But you're the guy I've been seeing like there in the background for my whole life. Who's that guy on bass? What's that guy doing? The, the Zelig of yeah. rock and roll. Who's yeah. that guy? There's that guy again. And then people mention you. Oh yeah, Don was on that one. Oh that yeah. guy. <laughs> You're like always there. Your presence. Where'd you yeah. Where'd you grow up? I'm from Detroit. Really? Yeah. What's the real name? Faginson. Faginson. Yeah, it's too close to Donald Fagan. What kind of name is Faginson? It's uh, It's an Ellis Island name. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, like they all are. But what's the background? Uh, my grandfather came over from Russia. Family uh, Family legacy. Yeah. Which I don't think is true, by the way. But yeah. The legacy is that he said. They said, "What's your name?" He said, "Vergussen." Vergussen. Yiddish for, for forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow! Because uh, yeah. he, he was pretty sure the czar was going to come over here and take him back. Oh, oh. <laughs> so he was, he was just saying, like, yeah, just let it be nothing. Yeah, yeah. But, but I don't think that's true. They're actually the name exists in Russia. My uh, I've come from uh, Russian Jews. Yeah. Yeah. Where, from where? From uh, oh, what you know, I just looked it up. Now I can't remember. But uh, yeah, my 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 father's side's Russian. And my my grandmother's Polish, Polish and Russian. Mostly, we're on it. We're the yeah. We got <laughs> that's it. Probably cousins. That's, that's one of the brand. That's a, that's a brand of Jew that comes over. The American Jew, Polish, Russian, or the darker ones, the, the Sephardic ones, who the swarthy ones. But uh, well, yeah, man. So Detroit. So was it? So what? How the whole family comes from Detroit? Your grandfather moved to Detroit. My, my grandfather moved to Detroit. All my grandparents moved, and my mom and dad. Were really? Because I, yeah. I don't think I've met a, a full clan of uh, or heard about a full clan of Detroit oh, Jews. Yeah, no, we're they're like yeah. fuck New York. Yeah, no, I think you got to be uh, you got to be my age. I'm 65. I grew up in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, right. Uh, but but Motor City. So like, what was going on? How many siblings you got? I got a sister. Yeah. Uh, she's the, uh, what is her gig? She's the uh, official statistician of the United States of America. Oh, really? Yeah. She still got a job? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's. It's not a government a, job? Is it a government job? It is a government job. Uh-huh. I better not talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get it next. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, right. We got a president that only likes numbers a certain way. Yeah, yep. in his favor. Yep. But uh, so what? What was it like in Detroit in the fit? Like, because I just saw the movie Detroit and it was not yeah. good. 
You know, I mean, the, the movie was good, but yeah. it seemed horrible. To, uh, nah, it like good. a war zone in the 60s. Well, that week, yeah. Yeah. You know, but, uh, you know, I mean, it, it it wasn't a great place to be a person of color, but, right. you know, what is? You yeah, know I mean? right. Uh, you know, uh, uh, your show with Benny Maupin was great, and Benny talked a lot about growing up in Detroit. He's yeah. he's about twelve years older than me. Yeah, so uh, you know, take out Yusuf Latif and put in MC Five and the Stooges. Uh huh. Right. You got the era. The, the, I come the, from. Oh yeah. The, the Stooges other side played of, in my high school. Yeah. The other side of town. It was your yeah. high school. Yeah. That famous high school. Didn't yeah, they? Did man. they do it a lot? Because I know there's one. Yeah. Where there's the, pictures of. Yeah, that's not that one. I oh. went to Oak Park High School. Yeah. But they they played a sock hop or something. Come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is that are yeah. you making it? Up. I I don't think so. Were you there? That's <laughs> <laughs> kind of there. Yeah. What year? That's physically sixty eight, maybe sixty nine, somewhere in there. So yeah. they were just making that. Like, where, did they have a? Set? They were a local band. You know, Bob right. Seger played in my high school. So, but like Parliament Funkadelic played in my junior high school. Stop they, it. Well, they were called the, the Parliament. Oh, okay. And they, but that they, must have been they before lip- they broke it open. Like oh, yeah, no, they, they lip synced. I just want to testify. They came with a DJ from the local AM station. And and they'd moved like the Temptations, but they were dressed like hippies, and they blew everybody's mind. I really bet you they did. Really something. Yeah. So, but that was, but they didn't do any long, sort of spaced out kind of synthesizer. No, 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 no. They, no, they lip synced straight forty five. I heard that that was not an uncommon thing. The lip syncing. You know, I talked to uh, Hunt Sales, yeah. and him and Tony yeah. were like kids, yeah. and they do the lip syncing gigs. You had to. There were, there were no PAs. Or anything, <laughs> you know, you, you couldn't. You couldn't set up a band. You'd go with the DJ. Yeah, it was a kind of an early form of payola. Uh-huh. A DJ would get a gig at a sock hop. Right, know, maybe right. get a hundred fifty bucks for showing up and emceeing. And all the kids loved the DJ. The kids loved the yeah, DJ. Right, but the bands played free. Yeah, and he'd play the record. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no speed. No PA needed really. <laughs> no PA necessary. <laughs> I can't believe the Stooges. That must have been something at that time. They were badass, man. They were, they were right? Yeah. I mean, like, what were they doing? Like, the, were they doing covers? I mean, No, no, they were doing that, you know. I they were doing the dog. Thing. The first album, yeah. They were Did playing, people yeah. look just like, well, what the fuck? What the fuck is happening? Or were they already no, accustomed no, to? No, it, it was the Detroit thing, man. There, yeah? There, there was a whole, you know, Stooges and the Five were like, it. The, a, a really uh, pivotal experience for me was one night, we went down to Joel Landy's print shop, uh-huh. where he he printed up the uh, the Fifth Estate, which was the local underground paper. The yeah. guy I went to high school with, and the MC Five were there, or members of the MC Five. Yeah. I know Wayne was there, jamming with uh, members of Pharaoh Saunders' band. Wow, yeah. Now <laughs> I know I, I I didn't even have half my wits about me that night, but I do know that. I never heard anything like that before. Yeah. Or really after, you know. Sure, it right. required those individuals <laughs> under those circumstances. Right. The one-time thing. It was a one-time thing, but it was a it was the it was a first and that really stayed with me, you know. Make, yeah. make something that no one's ever heard before. That's a sure. that's a really good thing to do. Yeah, if you can do it. Right, if you can do, you can do it. <laughs> sure, well, they, but, they, but, got, is, but is, it's is, not is, easy. But you but, got, but uh, is selling it a part of that equation, or no. that doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I don't know. I I believe that if you do original, soulful stuff, yeah. that, that comes from an honest place, yeah, that's your best business plan. Sure, I and mean, people will yeah. dig it. Someone will. Yeah, but like like the more I talk about it, or just thinking about it right now with you, it seems that uh, that that Detroit was equally as important to American music on some levels as New Orleans. In a way, yeah. I don't. 
I, I know uh, my friends from New Orleans will take umbrage at well, this, well, they, but, they, I, but I'm a hundred percent with you. Deeper Here, history, deeper history in New Orleans, right? But but uh, but Detroit, yeah, deeper history. But Detroit to modern music, to rock and roll after World War II. Yeah. It, people came from not just all over the country, but all over the world to work in the auto factories. Make those cars. And they brought their cultures yeah. with them. And that was the beauty of growing up when they actually made cars yeah, in Detroit. Yeah, yeah, right. Was that you heard every kind of music, and when people would come together and combine the music, yeah. you'd get incredible stuff. Sure, so man. I, I was really fortunate to grow up in, a, uh, in that time Yes, it was a huge industry. Huge, man. Yeah, yeah, no, was, yeah, yeah making the yeah, cars yeah. for the world. For the world, Motor City. Yeah, and then there, <laughs> I guess I guess some of that, I mean, I don't know if that's more of a metaphoric or poetic idea that some of that, like kind of like that that groove of a, you know, making machinery, like, you know, assembly lines. I don't I don't think that really made its way into the music necessarily. Here's, here's what I think made its way into the music is that everybody who's was from Detroit in that yeah. period of time came from a situation where their fate was inextricably tied to the auto business. So for Through example, family? my parents are both teachers, right? Yeah. But if auto sales were down, they'd lay off workers. Workers would move away to another city yeah. to find new work. Yeah. And so there'd be fewer kids in school. So they'd lay off teachers. They'd lay off barbers. Yeah. They'd lay off waitresses. So everybody was in the same boat. And there was really no point in putting on any airs. Yeah. You know, because everyone knew the story. Right. right? So no one was renting mercedes <laughs> yeah. i never saw rolls royce till i got out here I, they, there was maybe one limo in detroit when i was and it's probably like parked at the airport or something. I, I ne you never yeah. saw that stuff yeah because there was really no point in uh pretending you were something else that's the beauty of so you get a really honest population yeah and the music and the art and the culture of detroit reflects that it's it's basic and it's raw and it's for real. Yeah. John Lee Hooker, to me, is the epitome of Detroit music. When did you start playing? <laughs> uh, in the uh, in the uh, in the late fifties, uh, when I was you know in like six or seven. Uh huh. Uh, Always dad. bass. No, I was a, a piano and guitar. Yeah. And uh, and then you know like a lot of guys my age. I was born in nineteen fifty two. We were twelve when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. Right. Yeah. Uh, I hear about this. And, that moment. That's it, you know. And at twelve, <laughs> you would, you know, you looked at it and you thought, "Wow, I could use that edge with chicks, right?" <laughs> That's what everybody says. Like I, I got <laughs> a little, a little help. Man, yeah, would, would go a long way. Yeah. And uh, at twelve, you're just dumb enough to think that you can actually pull it off. Uh -huh. If you were a little older, maybe you'd have said, "Well, I'd like to do that, but maybe I should get that law degree to fall back mm -hmm. on." And if you were eight. It didn't register. Right. So a lot of musicians my age, an inordinate number of people born my year, and I really attribute it to that. So we started forming rock and to, roll bands. To, to and the Beatles on Sullivan. You're like, that, that's our window. Absolutely. We yeah. just got to wear the same clothes and play okay and we can get girls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it seemed that way. It's a little more complicated. But, uh -huh. uh, uh, but it, it kind of works. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the first band? First band was called the Saturns, uh -huh. and we won a, a local TV talent show. Uh, originals, covers, what? We we'd had some originals. Uh, yeah, we weren't very good. I think we covered. Uh, we did "Let's Twist Again" uh -huh. by Chubby Checker, and uh, not the twist, the twi "Let's Twist Again" like we did last like we summer. We did last summer, sure. Yeah, yeah. and people uh, were already yeah. twisting. <laughs> people were twisting, <laughs> and we we won. We, we won. just wanted to make sure they keep them twisting. <laughs> 
So you want to be part of that. That's right. Yeah, and you won. Yeah. Yeah, and we won. Did you do we won. a record? We won. No, we won a, a portable TV set. <laughs> Four guys, one TV set. And uh, so we sold it at uh, the drummer's dad had a drugstore. We sold yeah. it for 60 bucks. Yeah, and what'd you do with that? Split it up? Probably bought, Fair and re- square. Probably bought records. Sure, man. Yeah. <laughs> And 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 then what did when was the when did you start uh, like did, did you do you do any records with bands before your bands uh, right before no, like it, was not was yeah, like way back no it was hard you had to you had to earn your way into a studio yeah you know oh really well you didn't you have couldn't a, just pay you, no one had a back garage band on right. their laptop sure you know? so you had to have some money yeah and you had to have get some, a backer have a hit have a song someone wanted to man. move well you had to earn it you mm-hmm. had to earn the slot. And so I was just I was just playing a lot, I, and uh, ultimately uh, took a class in engineering uh, where they taught everything wrong, but it got me in the studio. Oh, really? <laughs> Wait, how old were you? I was probably in my early twenties at that point. After high school, did you After go to college? Yeah, I went to University of Michigan for a year. But yeah, I, but I in Ann Arbor. I, in Ann Arbor, yeah. That's a good town. It's a great town, man. Yeah. But this is like so you're like Kramer and those guys they were a little older than you right by what two years or that's something. it yeah, yeah so but that's you, a that's a big difference in that uh, you know when you're this difference between being fourteen and sixteen you know in the si- late sixties yeah I guess yeah. yeah but I mean you were of that age so you know you saw the culture kind of breaking apart oh yeah. you're old enough to yeah. you're born in fifty four fifty two fifty two yeah. so I was born in sixty three so yeah. by sixty five I mean you're wide awake yeah oh yeah you just saw yeah. the whole thing the wheels come off oh yeah 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 no <laughs> it was it was an exciting time uh, you know uh, not uh, not too dissimilar to this time in many ways but uh, the 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 uh, the counterculture has not quite manifested the way it did then. But well, that, no one goes outside anymore, man. It takes a lot to get people out, and also everybody does, can live yeah. in their own fucking world on their computer. They can just cherry pick the community they're in if they're in any at all. Going outside is the is the thing. Yeah, go to the thing. Yeah. Not like ah, how far away is it? Is there going to be parking at the yeah. protest? <laughs> how are we going <laughs> to? Let me check ways. Yeah, yeah right. Tens jam for no, you. No, it looks like it not look like we're getting in. <laughs> but uh, but did you go? Were you part of that? Did you go oh, to those yeah. MC Five shows? And yeah, you... went to MC Five shows. I went to anti war. Uh, yeah, riots. Because like Sinclair was sort of out there, and he was doing John Sinclair. Yeah, he, he was he was my hero, man. He's still, we're still good friends. Yeah, I love John. Oh yeah, he's yeah, still around. He was the guy. He was the leader of the city, man. He was of the yeah. counterculture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like the so you were hanging out with that at his place. I was uh, on the young side. I couldn't move in. Right. To uh, <laughs> the comment with the <laughs> MC Five guys, you know, it probably saved you. The fact that you couldn't move in probably saved you a life of drug addiction and horror. It, yeah, <laughs> uh, maybe maybe you made it out of that. I, one. I dabbled anyway, yeah. but, um, but yeah, uh, it you probably was right. a good thing. Yeah, you seem clear. I come out of it all right. Yeah, yeah, you did all right. Yeah, you don't look too beat up. <laughs> so, so you take this engineering class. Yeah, and 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 what happens? How do you get? I uh, come my way into a job at a studio and just started recording in Detroit. And, yeah, and what studio? Who are you? Well, it was a guy named Jack Ten had a little place called Mastermind Studios, mm-hmm. ten dollars an hour mm-hmm. on top of a an abandoned uh like the it's the Westinghouse building yeah and uh we had these cardboard boxes and on the walls and it was it was funky but it it was making records yeah yeah and who were you making records of oh man just anybody who come through <laughs> you know some jazz yeah uh, uh, the first session i did was for a 
jazz saxophone player named Sam Sanders. Someone just put it out, by the way. In, oh, really? In, in the UK, someone licensed it, and it, yeah, it was the first session I ever did. Yeah. And you just were you just an engineer? I was just engineering it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, someone put it out because of you, or because it, everyone's putting out all. There's a, there's it seems to be a, a, a tremendous global race on who can find the weirdest, most esoteric records to put on a 180 gram vinyl exactly. or re-release that, of something. That's exactly what this is. <laughs> oh yeah, it's like I found one. I found one of Chet Atkins. <laughs> <laughs> under his car didn't even mean to be playing for me I, like yeah. those acquired taste the out there shit yeah, like i like yeah. that just on when i'm doing shit yeah like sort of like where are we going yeah, you know yeah. like i think that a lot of that stuff people go like what the fuck is this if you're sitting there with expectations but mm -hmm. if you just let it roll you yeah. know you can kind of like edit okay well the stuff will jump out yeah a really uh important thing happened to me when i was about 14 mm -hmm. i was run driving around with my mom running errands and uh she left me in the car with the keys so yeah. I could play with the radio. Uh -huh. It was on a Sunday, and the local jazz station broadcast on AM on a Sunday. And I tuned into the station just as a, a song that I later discovered was part of the Blue Note catalog, Mode for Joe by Joe Henderson came on. Mm -hmm. And if you play that song, check out, I came in just as the saxophone solo was starting. Yeah. And he wasn't, it wasn't about notes, it wasn't about techniques. Yeah. He, he was like howling with anguish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, through the horn. Yeah. And, and he was speaking to me. I actually, I was 14, man. It, it, I was stunned to hear this. And he, it, well, just listen to the solo. Angry sax. Yeah, it was anguished. Yeah. Well, it, well, it, he was in pain. You yeah. Know? And then the drummer, Joe Chambers, kicks in about 20 seconds. In, yeah. And the thing starts to swing like crazy. And, and he falls into the groove. Uh -huh. And the message that came through to me as a 14 year old was don you got to groove in the face of adversity <laughs> and it really it, it really struck me like what kind of music is this i, yeah. I, I went out and i bought an fm portable fm radio uh-huh just to listen to the jazz station it, just to listen to wchd yeah and uh yeah i soon found that a lot of the music that was speaking to me was coming out of what was then a very obscure little label called blue note records Back then, back then, and and my buddies and I, we we'd we'd ride buses across town just to just to hold the albums. You know, yeah, we, we couldn't afford them; they were four bucks. Yeah, know, but you could you could read the liner notes and see that you check the names because it was like a repertory company of, of musicians. So that was your first. You're a jazz guy, at heart. I mean, you're, because yeah, I, you know, it's well, I don't really differentiate. I mean, Bob Dylan was super important to me. Uh, Stones right. was super important to me. Right, but, but right. um. But yeah, no, the jazz really spoke to me but it, from the time I was a young teenager. But it's interesting because that form, you know, you you you're kind of a popular music guy, really, production wise, right? As a, as a producer, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because like there there there's a certain level of of chops, and I I don't know, you know, how much jazz you play. Not that much anymore, but I, I that's how it came up. You know, I did I played bars, played bebop in Detroit. Until oh, yeah? I was in my thirties, just really? playing bars. Did you play stand-up bass? Yeah, stand-up and electric. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So yeah. You, you so you evolved. So you go to engineering school, but you're still playing. Oh yeah. When no, did that's you, how I lived. Yeah. When did you yeah. pick up the bass? I picked up the bass when I was in uh, in high school because there were a couple of keyboard players who were better than me and a couple of guitar players who were better than me, uh -huh. and there were no bass players. Uh -huh. So it was just a practical decision at the yeah. time, you know. Although Paul McCartney was. Uh, 
pretty cool bass player. <laughs> he was, <laughs> and right? I could relate to what he was playing. Yeah, you know, Ron Carter was a mystery. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. Paul McCartney, I was like, this is genius, <laughs> and I can play these. I things. can kind of do that. Yeah, it's, you can figure this out. Yeah, I don't know where that yeah. other guy's going. Yeah, that that takes some work. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that so that was your thing. You're playing behind who? Do you, do you any the the main person I worked with was like a hard bop piano player, a woman by the name of Lenore Paxton. Uh-huh. I, I played with her for ten years, and we just did bars in Detroit and uh, mostly the, a club called Bob and Rob's Lounge out, uh-huh. out, out in Clawson, Michigan. And I probably learned more about music from her than anybody for the rest. Did of Did she life. record? Not really. Really? Not really. Yeah. No, but ten just, years you were with her. Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe longer even, you know, on and off. Uh, after, it was you, once, her, and a drummer? And horns, no yeah, horns? We, no, no horns. It was a trio, and the owner of Bob and Rob's uh, was a singer uh-huh. who had this kind of Dick Hames. Uh, he was good. Yeah? He, he was really good, too good to be like owning just a bar in Detroit. Uh-huh. And and he'd get up and sing with us. It was great, man. I love, it was a great period of time. We'd do four or five sets a night. I wouldn't know any of the songs. I'd have to, li- she'd start. And she'd help me a little bit with her left hand, pointing uh-huh. out what the chords were. Yeah. And then one time through, I better remember it because <laughs> she was taken <laughs> off. And it was it was great, man. It was great for building my ears and my and my chops, and uh, and for exploring things. And also the whole scene, man. Playing in bars is oh yeah, so much fun. You just yeah. you, I just walk around and and you just talk to the wildest people and hang out with them and it was really cool I, yeah. so you're doing that you're playing with her you're playing with other things yeah you, doing you, all kinds of stuff i played with a, a great a local folk musician named ted lucas once we had the, the the strangest booking we ever had was we had uh a multiracial folk band that somehow got booked to open for black sabbath <laughs> at, at the, the toledo sports arena what year early 70s uh-huh and we didn't make it through the first song. We were pelted with bottles, and, and the drummer was bleeding, and we stopped. Oh my god! <laughs> but I met Ozzy there. We're, I'm so that was that. after like the second Sabbath record, something like that. Maybe I, the first, yeah, first or yeah. second. Well, they were on a U.S. tour, but it was pretty early on. But they were big enough to sell out the Toledo Sports Arena. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. So it must have been after that. Like you probably, yeah, they were probably a couple records in. Yeah, it could have. It could have just as easily been seventy four. How was it? Was it? What was it like watching them at that point? Oh, he's great, man. Yeah. yeah, that's a great band. Yeah, yeah it is a great, a great band. band. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Ozzy ended up singing on a Was and I Was record. He did. <laughs> he sings. I'll tell you a story, man. They, we had a song that none of our singers could sing. Uh-huh. And so Michael uh, Zilka, who ran Z Records, said, there's this wonderful girl from Detroit. You should use her. She's going to be a very big star. So, yeah. And it was Madonna, right? Right. Before she put out her first record, so we recorded her. We spent a couple of days doing it, and she was great, man. Yeah. I loved her. She was really sweet, and she worked real hard. But it didn't sound like was not was. Right. And I said, Michael, we we, we can't put this out. Yeah. <laughs> he said, You're making a huge mistake. She's going to be very big. I said, No, man. She's a disco is this, singer. Wait, is this the first record you're talking? This is uh, it was uh, Born to Laugh at. Tornadoes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 A song called "Shake Your Head." Okay. Yeah, it's on the second album, the Geffen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so we took her off, and then it was like, "Well, what are we going to do now?" So my attorney also represented Ozzy. Uh huh. And he said, "Well, call Ozzy," and Ozzy did it. <laughs> <laughs> now years later, we had Ozzy and Madonna on parallel tracks, and so we redid it as a uh, duet with Ozzy and Madonna, and 
to her credit, Madonna nixed it. <laughs> and Kim Basinger came in and sang it. And it's actually, it was our, outside of the United States, it was our biggest hit single ever. Which one? It's called Shake Your Head, duet with Kim Basinger and Ozzy Osbourne. And what? Kim was so sweet, man. She flew to London and she did a video with us. And Kim Basinger's not known for that kind of thing. Uh, well, she can sing, man. She's, yeah. she's a wonderful person, man. I, I, don't, I don't think people have a clue as to how... how well, I just know her as an actress. I don't know yeah. if she was a singer. Yeah. yeah, good yeah. singer. Yeah. All yeah. right. Yeah. So, but, but that record, it seems like you had, you had Mitch Ryder on there, too? Yeah, Mitch And Ryder. Kramer was on there? Wayne's Wayne? on it. Yeah, Marshall Crenshaw's on it. Doug Figer from The Knack. Who's, wow. Uh, yes. Are they a Detroit band? The uh, yeah. Well, Doug, was, I was in a band with him when, uh, when I was 12. Uh, really? Yeah. Yeah, no, he's a good friend. That I was in high school when that shit hit. Yeah, my Sharona. Yeah. So so all right. So you're playing these. You're playing all these different gigs with these people. So you put together was not was, and it was sort of what. What was the vision of the band, man? The vision of the band was to because uh, it's sort of a funk band, quite eclectic band. It was very eclectic. Although if you're from Detroit, it makes perfect sense. It's sure. just everything we grew up with. In fact, right. the first album had Wayne Kramer playing guitar. And Marcus Belgrave, a great jazz trumpeter who played with Charles Mingus. And yeah. Charles, he was playing trumpet. And we had guys from uh, P-Funk playing Larry Fratangelo, the percussionist right. on all those records was on it. So it, it was just an amalgamation of, of our roots. Of the uh, Detroit sound? Yeah, with David's lyrics on top, which were, you know, heavily influenced. That wasn't so Detroit. That was more zappa and beat poetry and and him he's a david was is a is an original man there's no one like him is he still around yeah he's around here he lives in la oh yeah, yeah. yeah. and and were you a zappa guy love zappa yeah 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 but the first i met him at the airport they they were on a local uh a tv show called swinging time uh -huh. in detroit uh -huh. in the 60s promoting their upcoming freak out album the first release yeah and they, they went out they blew our minds we saw that and then i saw him at the airport the next day and he gave me an autographed picture and stuff. So, all right, so you do, you work in, and then you, you put out the, in 81, Was Not Was record, the yeah. first one. Yeah. And this is where production in records gets a little odd, doesn't it? You mean in that period of time? Yeah, or? in the 80s, where the style of production, like there's a lot more tools at hand. And, and Well, uh, it started, I mean, it, it was before the computer stuff. Right. But, no, we, but right. we did those things, like we, they didn't have the drum machine, digital right. drum machines. Right. And, and they uh, they had like the little 808s were around that kind of thing but what we did was we we'd have a drummer come in first yeah and play the beat that i had in my head right and then we'd take the two best bars and you'd cut a tape loop which is you'd take the two inch tape uh-huh and you'd measure the start of one bar and and cut it for two bars yeah and cut on the bass drum right. the next one and then you'd tape it together into a circle then you set up these mic stands all over the control room and you'd keep running it through the cap stand and it would play over and over uh -huh. and that's that you didn't they didn't have samplers and and it was it was beautiful man and it, so it had the feel of a live steady. guy and it had the sound of analog tape and it was super steady yeah and then we would build the tracks on top of that that's how you got your the groove the yeah. bass groove the yeah, the, the, the drums I, yeah. and then we build up from the drums right and uh so you did you have but you'd put another live drum track on top of that yeah at the end you'd have a, a, a live put, human come in and play on oh, top. so you'd yeah. pull the loop out yeah. and then put the get the the live yeah. guy in after everything's set up yeah. that's sort of the backward way of doing it it's right? a terrible way of doing it it's much <laughs> but i didn't know how to do it any other way that's how that's just how i did it you know mainly because we didn't have the bread to uh to pay for a room full of musicians sure so but, uh, in time, eventually, it, really, the first live band that I produced was the B-52s. 
Yeah. Uh, that, that record, Love Shack, I produced. and the, How many? Oh, in 89. In 89. Is that is, right? And then I had to change my way of making records. I remember asking them, well, how do you know when it's the take? Because yeah. we didn't have multiple takes. So right. If you're building from a loop, there's only one take. And you, and this, this oh, is, because like you're yeah. just adding things. You're not actually yeah. playing together. You're just no, sort you're of not playing like, together. You're building on one. And that's piece how you did all those estate. records. You did all your records. All like the that. was no was albums were done like that. Yeah. How, did you got you had a couple of hits, right? Yeah. Later in the we had some big hits. At yeah. The, at the end of the eighties. Yeah. 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 What was the big hit? Big hit is a song called "Walk the Dinosaur." Yeah. And yeah. One called "Spy right. in the House of Love." Right. And we had a few other ones, and over in Europe, we were bigger in Europe. Right, so that was so so that was exciting. It's really exciting. It was fun. We and you toured. Time. Yeah, we toured for years. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. And, and you just put out a uh, you put out. Didn't you guys get together again in two thousand eight? Which has now been like almost ten years. Isn't that Feels wild? Like yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did one more album, which I, I actually think was our best record. And we and we toured then. And uh, I still get together with the guys and we play. We do a show in Detroit every year. Uh, not uh, not everybody. But was that yeah. was that the dream ultimately, or did you always like was production always something you're like was that your law was that your your sort of like your fallback in your head that you know you had these other skills or were they all sort of coming together they, as, I, at the same time? I wasn't separating them out. You know, right. There was something that happened around the time of Sergeant Pepper, I think, where uh, where production techniques became a musical color. Yeah, and. And so that it, to me, it was another instrument. Uh -huh. It still is. You know, what you do in the studio is you don't approach it that differently from the way you play your instrument. So, right. but yeah, but you've sort of evolved a, as a, a producer over time. Like, yeah. I mean, if you're telling me that, you know, from 81 to 89, you know, you're not really letting them play live together. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's, <laughs> well, hopefully you evolve, you know, over time. <laughs> but like yeah. in in that time you work with carly simon uh, yeah. i don't i don't know these ward brothers records they... it's a british group carly I, I, carly actually might have been a no i think we cut it to a, a click and then, yeah and, and what about bonnie yeah. Raitt too no bonnie Raitt. no bonnie Raitt was just after the b52 it was oh, like so, a month so after you're like guess what you can all play together I well I got... bonnie wasn't gonna have it any other way she can't she cannot and will not play to a drum machine uh and I learned a whole lot making Nick of Time, man, and just being around Bonnie because she's as soulful and honest and genuine a musician as a musician, as a singer, and as a human being as anybody I ever met. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's a real uh, yeah. uh, blues legend. Oh man, I love her so much. I, yeah. uh, you know, I, uh, she, uh, I get so moved when I hear her sing. I, I, sometimes I can't play her records because I get too emotional, and I loved her. Long before I, I knew her, I I remember seeing her at the Ann Arbor Blues and Jazz Festival in yeah. in it was nineteen sixty nine or something. I bought her first album when it was new, and uh, I was just a, always a big fan. So it was a, a thrill to be able to make those four records with her, and it's still a thrill to play her. Did you her do records. the one that has Angel from Montgomery on it? No, I wish. Uh, no, that's, uh, that's her cover. Of that is fucking insane. It's killer. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like heartbreaker, huh? Yeah. yeah. And you got to work with Iggy too, and I like yeah. that record, yeah. Brick we, by Brick. Well, Brick by Brick, yeah. Thank you, man. I've done a couple with them. Yeah. What was the other one? Uh, it's called Avenue B. So, huh. That's a weird one. Is it? it? It's a beautiful album. It, it's an underrated album. It's. I love I, the song. I won't crap out on Brick by Brick. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, I dig that one too. <laughs> <laughs> that was, it was a that was a fun record to make, man. So how how do you guys find each other? I mean, why why you? Why why do people like what do they when they're like I want that Don was thing. 
I don't, don't know. I don't Come know, on, I man. Really, I don't know. I guess because I had other records on the charts, probably. You know, it was 1989. It was, in fact... Oh, because the B-52s. I, I, well, you know, in, in, in fairness now yeah. to him, <laughs> I left the session from... Uh, I said, uh, I, I got to leave early. I was, we were doing brick by brick, and I left the session. I said, I, I got to go to the Grammys. Yeah. I was nominated for something. I didn't even talk about it. And that was the year we won Best uh, Album of the Year for Nick of Time. Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, so it wasn't like he was jumping on the bandwagon because there w- wasn't really a bandwagon. Uh, so right. I would say that... Uh, that was the it, album of the year, the Bonnie Raitt record? Yeah, yeah, that was 1989. That's and exciting. I, and I was in the studio with Iggy and I just I left <laughs> and they were looking on TV. <laughs> I didn't even tell them it was why here? I was You were out here? We were out here, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then there it was. And then we just went back to work the next day. And what's he, uh, you know, as a vocalist, you know, exclusively a vocalist, what's he looking for? You know, what's the relationship with him and a producer, with you specifically? What was he looking for in that record? What were you going to do for Iggy Pop, knowing Iggy Pop, having seen him in high school? Did you tell him? Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, I did, yeah. Well, <laughs> he, you know something? He... As wild as he is on stage, he's also a very deep guy. You should have him on. I've had him on. Yeah, he's, he's very. Oh yeah, very thoughtful, yeah, intelligent yeah, dude. Yeah, brilliant. He, he's he's surprising. He's like Keith, where you're like, oh, I get it. It's a character. You're doing. <laughs> well, it's an alter. It's the other part of you. It's a party. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's for real. I don't right. think you can. Oh no, no, you can't. Yeah, it's no. not like Alice Cooper or something like that, where he'll tell you he's right. Right, a I'm doing shtick. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. It's definitely that. Well, that's yeah. what you know. Rollins said that to me. He said, you know, you, you know, you, 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 you when you're talking to Jim, mm-hmm. it's different than Iggy. Yeah, you know, Iggy yeah. is Iggy. Jim's Jim. Yeah. No. That's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you see where it comes from. You uh-huh. know? Uh, I think he just wanted good tracks. Yeah. You know? He just, you know, he wanted to make a quality record. Did he want to make a, like, because like, there's, like, there's a single on there, right? I mean, you know. Yeah, it was a big single. Uh, candy, candy. Candy, yeah. yeah. Um, and and, and he, was he thinking in terms of that? It Because it doesn't seem like certain artists are ever really thinking in terms of that. But I imagine yeah. producers are always kind of thinking in terms of that. You want well, a single I'll t- on a can record? Can I tell you something, man? I, I've always been a little uh, removed from popular, like top ten pop uh-huh. record. I've never, I don't really have a whole lot of hit singles uh-huh. that I've worked on. Um, so my orientation as a producer is just to try to get an artist with a great vision and help them realize it, uh-huh. whatever that vision may be. Uh-huh. And if I feel I can be of assistance, yeah, uh, I'll I'll do uh, do the record. And sometimes I think, I, I don't know how to do what you're talking about. And here, you should probably call this person. Oh, really? I'll, I'll buy the record the day it comes out. <laughs> who, who, have, who have you sent away, oh, Don? I, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I have declined. I, 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 I can't help you, man. <laughs> it does seem like there have been some people that you work with that were you know, a, on the other side of the arc of their career a little bit. Uh, in a way you know someone John Mayer once said to me how come you always do the album after the big one <laughs> and, and uh, he, now John's a he's a real good friend and yeah I love him and uh, yeah. I know he he was just being a bit of a pro, or he might just want to know the answer I don't know so just I, busting I, your balls I, well, I, I didn't bust him in the chops uh-huh. to ask him but I thought about it and I thought well <laughs> got you thinking it's usually if, if you have some big hit single it, it may not be uh, an accurate uh, reflection of who you are. Oh yeah, and maybe people want to get back on track. Right. Now, I think that I think that's the kind of record I'm. Because you did that. Yeah. You sort of did that with Elton John, right? 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. He played piano. He didn't play an electric piano. We got him on a grand piano, which uh-huh. at the time was something he was shying away from. Oh, really? Yeah. And you did like well the your the Dylan record. What was that like? Well, you know, Bob's my hero. I I, I believe we were woefully unprepared to produce that record. Under the Red Sky. Under the Red Sky. Yeah. I don't know if I know the record specific. I don't know if it, I have it's, the record. It's not hailed as one of his masterpieces. Yeah, uh, but, the, but there's a few of those. It's not your fault. <laughs> well, here I tell you, here's I can tell you what I did wrong on that. It's yeah. just that I went in thinking, all right, you know, let's make blonde on blonde part two or something yeah like that. right and that's the furthest thing from bob dylan's mind is repeating himself right most the furthest thing from most great artists mind. right you know they're, yeah. they're, he was trying to do something else yeah there's the uh, assistant engineer ran a, a a cassette of the talking on the between songs on the first session i did with him and he said man you know you may want to you may want to have this as a souvenir and i i, I plopped it in when i was driving home from the session and i landed right on a spot where bob was uh, he was telling me something he wanted to do, and I was telling him why it wouldn't work before we tried it. Yeah. I waited all my life to work with this guy, man, my hero. Yeah. And I didn't even chase up his idea. And I pulled over. I wanted to throw up. I was so sick. <laughs> oh, no. But it was, <laughs> yeah. it was a good lesson. But, yeah. Uh, and he, he, What you can hear in Under the Red Sky is the beginnings of what he later went on to do, which was this kind of rootsy American... Right music, I think based yeah. based in sort of a, and a, yeah, the, the weird uh, the 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 sort of ghost troubadour time traveler of Americana that, music. That's, that's actually a really good description, man. <laughs> and I think he would like that description. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he was try he was headed that way, and I was probably not helping him get there. And I learned a lot from that. I, I, um, you guys are friends or no? Yeah, still friends. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But like friends, friends, or like when you see him, he says, nah, hi. So, uh, uh, we just did something fairly recently that I can't talk about." But, oh yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah how's but, he doing? He's great, man. And you know, I, I still I, I love his music so much. I I, I watch all his shows. I follow his tours on yeah. YouTube. There's always some someone yeah. with a with a phone, right, you know, right, taping it. And I think he's a great singer. Yeah, you you have to really listen you got to forget about the original versions of the songs yeah but if you really listen to what he's doing he's inhabiting every word of those songs and approaching them with a beginner's mind a fresh mind every night and they ring true he's 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 a deep guy man <laughs> yeah, he's, he, and he's yeah. really a great singer no i agree with you <laughs> i i think that like there there are periods where you know he was doing something up there that was either out of uh uh, spite or 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 exhaustion but i always think it's funny that you know for years people be like i don't know what song this is i don't know what he's saying you know he'd do a whole tour like that right yeah what, i don't know what, what, what's going on and then he released a record of like crooning like you know completely clear perfect uh audible vocals and to yeah. me that's sort of like eh, i wasn't feeling it fuck you you know in a way i i love the sinatra records yeah so, yeah i think he's really found it's it, first of all it's really hard to tackle those songs and follow you can't follow frank's footsteps in or you're doomed right yeah so he's found a really a totally original and way to 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 inhabit those songs and and be himself right it's it's, it's brilliant man. well I, th- I think like it's sort of it's a very interesting because i have to assume that you know he he doesn't need to tour other than for his own 
you know, emotional and creative needs. Uh, he tours because that's what he does, man. Right. I mean, you play. That's right. Musicians right. play. And, yeah. and I think that, you know, his commitment to it at this point in his life and the way he, you know, is approaching it, which is sort of like a performance piece, mm-hmm. you know, every year, that this this particular manifestation of Dylan is sort of, it, it, it's very interesting and it's it's very sort of timeless. It's, I I think he's great. I, uh, yeah, man. I mean, I saw him, I, uh, he did a uh, that that Desert Storm concert. Yeah, I, I love that show. But yeah. I love this tour that he's on right now. I I think he's delivering a hundred percent every night. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I I agree with you. But like you know, obviously we can't go through everybody. But you know, you got to work with Seeger on a record that I don't know, The Fire Inside. Fire Inside. But you're yeah. just playing bass. Are you? No, no, I produced it. Yeah. And I play bass too. Yeah, yeah. Do you play bass on a lot of these? If asked, I never offer. You know, I did some. You did some with. You did another with the B fifty twos, Glenn Fry, Detroit, Rest yeah. of Soul, mm-hmm. uh, Roy Orbison. That must have been something. That's beautiful. He's a sweet guy, real good guy. And yeah. and when he opened his mouth, it was like wow. Uh, I, <laughs> oh yeah, Waylon Jennings did a country trip. And what was you did a you did the the Brian Wilson doc? I directed a documentary about. I Brian think I Wilson saw that doc. It's, it's good. Called, I just wasn't made for these times. Yeah, yeah. it's heartbreaking. He's heartbreaking to me. Well, the, uh, just it, not not because it's he's sad. Yeah. It's just there's a couple of people, and I've said this before on the show, where I have a hard time listening to it because I can feel the vulnerability and the pain of it. Well, that's what makes him a great artist, too. No doubt, no comes, doubt. Comes but, but like some people hear the beauty of it, and for me, it's sort of like oh, when I hear it, I'm like, oh, he's so sad. Like it's so like yeah. it's hard for me to hear. Yeah, which I, is, I, I understand that. Yeah, it, you don't, you don't. I think at his best, what he did was make kind of sad wistful songs with this great yeah. harmony and oh, up, yeah, and, yeah. and yeah. upbeat thing right. underneath sure and you don't necessarily it's like hank williams kind of hank williams wrote the darkest saddest most depressing Oof. songs but yeah. he was going out playing roadhouses and he knew right. that people had to stay and drink right? right so he put you know cold cold heart you yeah, know that's yeah. like got this this beat and it's oh, up yeah. and major key and stuff and yet you listen it was lyrics yeah. but that was hank's thing we tried to to copy that a little bit and was not was you know that I, I tried to do music that would be the opposite of the lyrics uh-huh. it was based on a theory that if you had if you had a beautiful diamond and you wanted to show it to somebody yeah if you put it down on ice you won't see it you put it down on black velvet yeah people can see the diamond right so i, I it was a device didn't always work sometimes right. it, you, you go too far and it's just an well, it's alienation a, device. Sure, but it's an old blues device too, right? I mean, that's yeah. the, the heart of it, isn't I it? I think it has to do with playing bars, you know? It, right. You've you got to keep people drinking or you don't get paid at the end of the night. Right. <laughs> and they don't ask you back. It's so. sort of like hard bop, like the transition from, you know, into Interesting, yeah. hard bop. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, like maybe we can't go all the way out there. Why don't we tighten it up a little bit and give people something they can swing to? Well, that's very, you know, that's that's something I, re- when, once I took the gig at Blue Note, yeah. I really had to figure out uh, I was hired to uh, move, continue the the aesthetic uh-huh. of the previous seventy three years. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. So what is that aesthetic? Well, it turns out the uh, the guys who founded the label, Alfred Lyon, Frank Wolf, and a couple of their buddies, wrote this little manifesto. When oh, really? They started in nineteen thirty nine, and they dedicated themselves to the pursuit of authentic music and to providing uncompromising freedom of expression. Right. That's the essence of the manifesto. Yeah. But if you really follow the history of what they did, um, they 
they've just pushed the envelope in every era. You know, yeah. and they started doing like stride piano players, but by ten, yeah. ten years in, they wanted to get into bebop. Yeah. They chose Monk, of all the people, man, yeah. the, the, the most out-there cat of yeah. the time. But they made these incredible, seminal records with right. Thelonious Monk that changed the face of music, changed the way people wrote songs, changed uh, the way people approached solos, changed yeah. the way people voiced chords and how you played behind a soloist. He's so, uh, so influential, but they saw that and no one else was really seeing it at the time. Jump ahead to what you're talking about, the hard bop stuff. That was... That was Horace Silver and yeah. Art Blakey. Art Blakey's throwing in backbeats. Horace Silver's doing this funky gospel stuff. Yeah. And you couldn't do that at Minton's Playhouse. You right. kicked off the bandstand for that. That was revolutionary music. You listen to it now, it sounds pretty much, uh, you know, it's become such a part of the musical vocabulary. Right. It sounds normal. But what? it was radical at the time. You jump ahead to the 60s. They got Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter yeah. making these modal jazz records reflecting what they were doing with Miles. That was, that was pretty radical. So what happened to Blue Note? Why are these, all these two, they're, they're Japanese owned Blue Note for a while? Or what was that? Well, it's gone through a series of ownerships, but they're, you know, it, <laughs> it costs money every time you got to reissue a record. You got to sure. remaster it and you got to do some yeah. their costs at the front. Yeah. And there have been times when Blue Note's been owned by companies that haven't uh, appreciated the value of the catalog and didn't want to invest in it. So in those time periods- Were there time periods where there were shitty reissues? Like, you know, quality-wise? Yeah, it's uneven. You know, there's a whole philosophy to remastering. Uh, I think it's something you can dramatically alter the character of a record when you remaster you don't want to do that though right no you don't man but a lot of people think uh, well let's improve it <laughs> we can improve but this now with the technology it's so man. weird man it's so weird when people do that i know there are some rock acts that are sort of like well let's you know let's reissue you know they can sell it again you can yeah. sell a thing you know nine times nine different formats i'll tell you a story we were we were in 1993 when i started working with the stones yeah they signed virgin records and they were going to reissue the catalog so everything had to be remastered from the beginning the whole catalog? Uh, no, no, the, from what they owned, which oh. uh, the, the pre-app, the post-app. Post post yeah. The first thing was, was Sticky Fingers yeah. and Exile were the first two. And so we got the original tapes and sent it to the the maestro of mastering. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whoever that is. It's yeah. Bob Ludwig. You know, okay. Uh, he, was, he was a genius. Yeah. Uh, you know, just look at his discography. It'll yeah. blow your mind, man. But we didn't give him any instructions. Yeah. So Bob went in and, and made it sound up to par with 1993, like added an octave, a low end and stuff. He, 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 he was doing what he thought the record company wanted, but we listened to it and it, it, you couldn't recognize it. Oh. So what? So, really, you listen to Sticky Fingers and be like, what is that? Well, it just, it sounded different. Yeah. You know? no, not uh, really, not Bob's fault. Right. He was, he's, he's, the, he's a genius, sure. you know. Uh, but we'd listen, all right, what's wrong here? Well, let's put up the original tapes and see what we got. So we listened to the unmastered Exile yeah. and Sticky Fingers, and that doesn't sound like the way, the album you remember, the, that I remember, that they remember. It doesn't? So th- no. It's because someone mastered it and did something originally. to it. And that's originally, and that's how you heard it. You right. didn't hear it raw. They're all really different. Every song is different, you know, especially yeah. Exile, which was made all over the world. Did you work on that remastered Exile? I worked. I worked on two different versions of Exile. I, I didn't do the remaster. I did. I worked on the remastering in '93, and then a few years ago, yeah. we did a second disc of 
where they finished some yeah. unfinished songs and i worked on those yeah, yeah. I, I got that yeah a couple of those songs are pretty good there's some there's some cool stuff yeah yeah, there. yeah. yeah. it's definitely worth hearing yeah no yeah it's great um so the so point, anyway so we so then we started we got all the cds together yeah. and you listen to all the different cds and the cassettes everything from yeah and they're all radically different and it turns out like some guy working a plant in germany at mid on the midnight shift decides to add treble <laughs> <laughs> and that's the new sound of exile on main street you know going forward so we thought all right what are we going to do finally we answered an ad in goldmine magazine yeah um a guy had virgin vinyl copies still in the shrink wrap from 1972 a exile and he had a version of sticky fingers too. Uh -huh. so he brought it up to my house in mulholland where we were recording voodoo lounge not knowing that he was bringing it to mick and keith right yeah Which was a, 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 <laughs> that's when you wish they'd invented iphones earlier <laughs> you want to get that on it tape was great man but we put that on so wait he comes over with the records and you, you introduce him to the guys yeah what did he just melt yeah, yeah, no, it blew his mind. It was, it was great. It was one of the greatest things ever. <laughs> Could he talk? They're, they're, they're buying their own record from him. Could he talk? Could he even function? Yeah, he was cool. Yeah, yeah. and he, he he could function enough to know not to charge them for it, but to ask them to sign a dozen albums. Right. So everyone made out like bandits on the deal. So and, so what'd you do with those records? Well, you put it on, and ah, there's Exile. So we sent that to Ludwig, and we said that this is what it's supposed to sound like, and he got it. And the the remasters from 93 sound great because they adhere to the to the aesthetics of the original artistic impulse. So he didn't rip it from the wax. He just got this. He, yeah, no, they, he, could, he could hear, he'd hear he, what they he understood what it was. Yeah. Oh, wow. But, there was, but you have to have some frame of reference. And even the Stones didn't have a frame of reference. It sure. It had been so long. So I wouldn't expect him to with Exile no. or either of those <laughs> records. I'm, I'm surprised they have a frame of reference for that decade. <laughs> Uh, so I, same thing at Blue Note. Uh, I, when I but got it's so the, much more simple. I mean, you listen it's to not, some. Of well, it's not. You know, but it's simple having gone through that exercise. But if you put up the unmastered tapes, it doesn't sound like the records you remember. Huh? But Rudy Van Gelder did his own mastering. Rudy Van Gelder, who engineered all all those classic albums yeah. in the fifties and sixties, and not just for Blue Note, but he did the Impulse records. He right. Love Supreme. You know? Yeah. So he'd master them, and there was a sound there that everybody liked. Yeah. But over the years, the the reissues get fogged. Sometimes they're amazing. There's a company called uh, Music Matters that does our audiophile yeah. work, and it, they sound incredible. But they figured it out. You got to go back to the original Virgin vinyl that everybody approved, and match to the feel of that so that's what we do so now. listen to the record don't rip it from the record or yeah, don't the rip CD. it from the record just no. get a guy with good ears who's a genius yeah. at that shit to yeah. to take it from the record because yeah. you know like there's certain things you listen to like i don't think it's a blue note record i don't know who who did the giant steps record giant step the coltrane that's on yeah. atlantic yeah so like you know i got the re the the new one the mm -hmm. vinyl on that is yeah. a it was a 10 inch yeah. 45 speed well, uh 180 yeah, gram right, thing right, right. And it sounds like it's in the fucking room. It's so clean. Yeah. There's no mess on it at all. Yeah. And it just feels like it's just a balance thing. It's like, you know, like bring that up, that bring that up, level it out, and that's it. And was, is that like, isn't that how a lot of that jazz was recorded? Well, the the Blue Note stuff that's considered to be classic was, they they cut it live to two tracks. Right. No, they mixed it as they were recording. Yeah. So you don't have the option of bringing it's up. It's great. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now you just don't mess with it, man. That's really the thing is don't, don't impose yourself 
on the scene, man. You know. So what is what is the vision that you have for Blue now? What is that thing I got in the mail that I listened to? Oh, the, the Blue uh, Note review. Yes. Well, the, the the overall vision for Blue Note. It's a nice is, box. It's yeah, you know, there's, there's you. pictures in it. There's paper. There's a reissue of an old record. Then there's a new record that's recorded live. There's some. Uh, there's a scarf in there. I think. Yeah, John Varvatos yeah. designed Blue Note scarf. We got <laughs> yeah. a magazine. Uh huh. The idea was, you know, how we were talking about the liner notes for the Frank yeah. Zappa record, right? And and, and just my experience driving around Detroit on right. a bus trying to right. trying to hold the albums to restore that kind of experience of holding something and connecting with the it's artist. A nice so, box. I was I yeah, was I, I didn't I whenever I get something like that I'm like should I even play it? Like, yeah, I, yeah, heck yeah, you should play. It. There's actually a it's a the centerpiece of it is an anthology of new tracks right. from artists on the roster that aren't available anywhere else. They don't stream. The live tracks, that. right? A no, a couple are live, yeah. Yeah, but they're whatever. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, uh, but they're new and they've yeah. never come out. And uh, and in some cases were created specifically for the box. We're on box two now. We're making yeah. it. And that's all stuff recorded specifically to a theme f- for the box. What's the theme? The theme is uh, the theme of of the album Second for Box Two is uh, it's about Tony Williams the album mm-hmm. and Tony Williams great drummer played with Miles Davis mm-hmm. in the sixties and and really totally revolutionized the approach to drums he made some great albums for Blue Note between uh, late eighties and early nineties right up until the time he passed away really six albums that are yeah. kind of really underrated classics so we're trying to shine a light on those so the drummers on the roster are reimagining those songs so it, that, that, these are all new tracks cut oh, to wow. theme what's so, that way and what reissue are you putting in there uh it's gonna be a bobby hutcherson record so okay so that's nice so this is gonna be a twice a year thing you do twice a year yeah and then and what, it's, it's by subscription and, right uh, it, we're just trying to do cool new stuff that's all just something the, the one of the things i felt taking the gig was that because I, you know, look, I stream music all, every day. Sure, I love it. You yeah, know, but I miss that connection from the liner notes yeah. and from the package. So, how can we get back to that and maybe go past it? And so we're we're just trying to. Uh, well, I'm in a vinyl hole. I'm doing. I you know I got in a lot of records and I you know I got good equipment to listen to them on and I like yeah, it. Yeah. And like and so you're on top of the newer Blue Note reissues too. You're, you're oh, yeah, you you yeah. oversee all that stuff. Yeah, we got some great. We got an 80th anniversary coming up in 2019, and we got some really cool and because there's a lot of audiophiles around now who are into the vinyl you know yeah. they're getting it. it vinyl's got an amazing sound really distinctive you know it's a kind of distortion really you know it's it's not it's not pure and that's what's good about it yeah it's, it's got some ugh, on yeah it, you know that <laughs> that gives it a soul and a and a feel yeah and some uh, more than others depending on how many times it's been played or yeah. you know someone ate off it you buy used records sometimes you're like what was this guy doing with this record what is that? how come i can't get this fingerprint off was he, was he handling he it with shellac it. on his hands yeah right was he so high he melted like yes. his hands were on fire that i could relate to yeah. <laughs> definitely his flesh was burning <laughs> It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, so that's it. But that's what you do. Like, if you have a question, you're like, go find the original wax, yeah. put it on, give it to the guy, tell just, him to match it. Yeah, just trust the initial impulse of the artist. If everyone was, if they were all slapping hands at the end, saying, "Yeah, this is great," who are we to editorialize? Right, we went right. in the room, man. You know, so sure. And and if and especially if it stands the test of time. Yeah. Why would you change anything? There was one of all the reissues we've done in the last six and a half years. 
one of my favorite albums, Ornette Coleman, Live at the Golden Circle. It's just a trio. Yeah. David Eisenson and Charles yeah. Moffat. And we discovered that the t- the left and right side are out of phase on the original tape. Okay? <laughs> yeah. But because of that, the cymbals got this crazy sound. Right. But also because of it, the bass is a little blurry. Uh-huh. So we put it back in phase. Yeah. And the crazy sound on the cymbals went away. Yeah. And, but you could hear the bass really well. Yeah. What, what would you do? <laughs> I, well, it's, it's a tough question philosophically because yeah. if you want the record that people know, then yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but, but that's also one of those things where it's like, well, you fixed it. Not, but you didn't fix it in a way that was uh, ideological. You know, it wasn't like a, a preference thing. Yeah. It was like, no, this was engineered wrong, and this is what it sounded like. Well, here's unless Ornette did that on purpose. I'm, I guarantee you, he didn't. It was done by an engineer yeah. in Stockholm who didn't realize that right. the mics were out of phase. Um, we we put it in phase, but figured out how to get the crazy sound out of the cymbals. <laughs> And so it, it's got because the, it's got a real quirky character. So, yeah. you, so it, it took it took weeks. Okay? Yeah. It really took weeks and, yeah. a, and a lot of a lot of people involved. Meticulous. But we got the quirkiness back in, but got it in phase. And I, I, that's the one time we editorialized. Oh, now I got to get that record. Yes, yeah, you, you can't lose with that record. It's, and it's new. <laughs> you got a new reissue of it. Yeah, we, yeah, a few years back. Well, we got to talk about the Stones before we go. Sure. Do some Stones talk because I talked to Keith, and it was it was a it was a, guy, a very fanboy interview. It was goofy. Yeah. I got him laughing. Yeah. He was he had a good time, yeah. but like you know, you did like what this was uh, Blue and Lonesome was the fifth Stones record you did. Yeah, I've done some live ones too, but fifth studio album. They all have these enormous personalities. Yeah, and uh, and they're all really different, and they pull in different directions. Uh-huh. And if you listen to any one track you go hmm i, I don't know <laughs> yeah. but when you when you put it together you realize that it's this perfect blend really quirky but really perfect and, and they're I, still like that oh they're great man I, you know i've played with them a number of times yeah and you really understand it when you get inside of it because forget all the hypes or yeah. and everything it's a really jocular loose fun musical conversation uh-huh. that's going on yeah it's so much fun to play bass in the Rolling Stones, <laughs> <laughs> and and they they're great listeners. They're like jazz musicians. Yeah. It, they never play it the same way twice. Someone does something, they hear it. You 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 could tell just by talking to Keith. He's yeah. he's fast. Yeah, he's quick. He's yeah. fast. He's sharp. Uh-huh. He's really smart. Yeah, Charlie will do some little thing on the hi hat. Keith will react to it. It'll impact how Mick sings. Ronnie will play something back. It's the interplay is so brilliant in this band they're really on top of it that much in it they're yeah, so yeah, in yeah yeah and they still are i saw them in stockholm in october yeah on this no filter tour they were awesome they're not they're not playing backtracks on there they're playing live all live oh, they, not... they they can't yeah we did uh, i went with them to the super bowl yeah and they were the first maybe the only band to yeah. play completely live on this so you have seven minutes from the end of the second quarter uh-huh uh, to get the entire stage set up on the field and everyone to be balanced and tuned in. Yeah. And they didn't have Ronnie's guitar for like the first 30 seconds. Okay. And it was like, oh my, I, mean, we're, I was sitting in, actually, you know what my gig was? Yeah. My gig at the Super Bowl was that the ABC or whoever, I think it was ABC, the censors, yeah. didn't like two lines in the song. Um, 
you, you make a dead man come yeah. and start me up. And yeah. am I am I still your rooster baby or am I just one of your cocks yeah. on uh, Rough Justice? Uh-huh. And I had to hit the uh, uh, the, the, the button, the mute button on yeah. Nick's microphone on cocks yeah. and come. Yeah. And if I missed it, it was like a five million dollar fine they had to pay <laughs> it was it was a thrill yeah <laughs> you got it i got it <laughs> so like but this last like i was completely blown away by the the most recent record by blue and lonesome yeah thank you yeah because you know people like me had been talking i talked to keith about it when i talked to him I was like, well, why don't you guys do a blues record yeah and they're like he's like dr mick you know like yeah. so so when that happened and you know and i got it and i was like Oh my God! They did it. They like I felt like you know like uh, you, you know like I just felt like I was cheering in my car like that it 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 worked because that's what they come from that that record could have been their first album. Yeah. Do you know what I mean in yeah. terms of the song list? Yeah. Right. Abs- absolutely. And yeah. and I was so impressed that you know not only the production but just how they got into those songs. And there, because the problem with the blues, if there is a problem, is that you know any idiot can play it, and God bless the idiots, and mm-hmm. I hope they're having a good time. Mm-hmm. But to own it, mm-hmm. you know, especially covers, yeah. is no easy trick. No. So you, you know, for them to own that, like they own that whole record, yeah, because they're the fucking Rolling Stones. It was one of those things where yeah. it's like, of course, yeah, right, yeah. It was it was an accident. If, if we'd have said <laughs> let's do a blues record, it never would have happened. Yeah. We were getting used to a new studio. We're at British Grove Studios at Mark Knopfler's place in London, which is a great studio, but yeah. we'd never been in there yeah. before. So just getting used to the headphones, it was a little awkward. So, so Keith, and I know he had it in the back of his mind anyway, the way to get everyone focused was to, he was holding on to Blue and Lonesome. The song. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, let's do Blue and Lonesome. Yeah. So they played it and it was magnificent. And yeah. Thankfully, Chris Sharma, the engineer, hit record. Uh-huh. And we went in and listened to it. And, uh, you know, it was undeniable, right? <laughs> so I said, uh, yeah, well, let's, let's do another one. <laughs> and sure. And at the end of the first day, we'd done five blues songs. Now, no one said, hey, do another five. We got a blues album. Right. But we came back the next day and did more. But no one talked about it. It's a little like uh, a guy pitching a no-hitter. Yeah. No one talks about it in the dugout. You jinx it. Right. No one mentioned blues album. Right. And at the end of, like, Two and a half days, we had the whole record in the can, and still no one said, "Great, let's put out a blues playing, album." All playing live, all live. There's not there's not a single overdub. The thing is, they were all in the same room, yeah. And a lot of the drum sound comes from the vocal mic, for example. Oh, so that's if, what that if he is? punched, right. if he punched a line, right, you'd lose the drums, so you right. couldn't fix anything. So that's exactly as it happened. That's amazing, and, yeah. you, and and like you know, Mick is like there's a because of that you know the sad thing that happened with that woman he used to date. Like mm. there's a lot of fucking recent blues in that guy, yeah. and you know, like he played the hell out of it, the harmonica, and he sang yeah. the shit out of some of those songs. He he's great on that record. Cause it's like unbelievable. Yeah. No, nah, there there's something else. You know, they're they're really the the. They're giants who walk the earth. I'm not being hyperbolic. Why was when I saw them live, and I hadn't seen them live since '81 in yeah. San Diego, yeah. and they did uh, you know, uh, in the encore, they did Midnight Rambler, or maybe it was the last song. Mm-hmm. And like how that to know that that song is just five guys. Mm-hmm. You know, when you listen, like because the original is, is it's its own thing. It's a studio yeah. thing. Yeah. But but the live version on 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 Get Your Yaya's Out is pretty astounding. Yeah. But then just to hear them do it, mm-hmm. like just basic fucking rock. Yeah. And they, it's just so big. 
there. I mean, one time, <laughs> I don't know what about. I think, just I think it was in the nineties. Yelling about like yelling at you. <laughs> no, <They're> great. <laughs> well, I I appreciate your enthusiasm <laughs> and I share it. You know, there's one time it, we were recording uh, Bridges to Babylon is in the nineties, mid nineties. Yeah. We were over in Hollywood at. Uh, what's now East West Studios, and it's a big room, Studio One. It's where yeah. Sinatra recorded with big orchestras and everything. Yeah. And uh, they, Mick and Keith and Charlie were alone in the room. Everyone else was on dinner break. Yeah. And I walked in to tell them something. And these three guys, their personalities <laughs> so far exceed the, the, the boundaries of their skin yeah. that the room was full with the three of them standing. The, the, the person, if you could view the... If there was a charisma camera yeah they're like remember when they used to have those blow-up dolls on the stage that were like right. five stories high yeah that's who they are right and yeah they, yeah and they have to contain that in the, in the <laughs> normal body but they're just they're larger than life cats and when it, they play together there's nothing like it you also did david crosby records willie yeah. nelson records chris yeah. christopherson so you work yeah. all angles of all types yeah it's, it's just there's just a couple kinds of music, but man. like Waddy Wachtel's always around. Yeah, Waddy's around. Yeah. Like, and yeah. then there's a few other guys that are always around. Like the David yeah. Crosby record. How was that working with him? Oh, I love David. He's yeah. great. He's been over here. Yeah, good, yeah. Really, I, I think know. he would have moved in. <laughs> Trying to sell him the house. <laughs> <laughs> I got a deal for you, David. <laughs> and I'm I'm glad you're doing this thing with Blue Note. It was great talking to you. It's been a real pleasure. Do we cut? Do we cover enough? I, I feel confident about that. <laughs> yeah, good work on that Blake Mills album too. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Blake, he's 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 a brilliant kid, and it's a real honor to play bass on that. Yeah. He's he's got good sound, man. He can do like he's yeah. one of those wizard kids where you're like, oh my yeah. god, it's from yeah. outer space, this guy. He's gonna be around for a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's a real it's interesting yeah. though because like you know he's got a great sense of, as a producer himself, right? Yeah, yeah. and he's got yeah. a great feel for a guitar, and he plays you know he plays amazingly well. Uh, you know, but like he seems to really be ex ex excelling as a producer. He's got a real sense of of color. Yeah, you know he he paints an impressionistic canvas. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Like he, he, it's it's really hard to do because every so much has been done already, right. and there's so many sure. electronic ways of getting to sounds that to come up with something fresh. Yeah, that's not just sound for the sake of sound but is actually contributing emotionally to, yeah. the, to the record and he's great at that he's an analog cat he likes that he likes oh, the yeah. old toys oh, yeah. yeah like i talked yeah. to neil young i, I like you yeah. know neil young literally gets on stage with a rig for an amp rig where he doesn't know if it's going to make it through the show <laughs> and that that drives him he's yeah. like he, yeah. yeah no there's a there's a whole lot to be said for that there, there's there's just something about old gear in general certainly if you're talking about real instruments i just got a uh, Carlene Carter gave me a, a, a 1967 Fender Jazz that belonged to her dad, Carl Smith. And it's been sitting around since like pristine, new. But oh, the wood wow. has aged yeah. since 1967. And there's nothing like old wood. You, right. know, you, you cannot manufacture right. what that does to the sound, even really? on, on an electric instrument. So this is just the greatest bass I've ever played. Wow, and, man. Uh, and I, I've been using it on everything. I always played Precisions for yeah. years. and. I, a, I even I said, well, I play precision. It's a jazz bass. I left it sitting for. Yeah. She gave it to me a few years back. This year, I pulled it out, and we're it's inseparable. The best. Now. Yeah, it's just the old stuff sounds better. I know. I, I like. I tend to buy new stuff like that thing. That's the only one I got over here, but that's yeah. like an '86. Yeah. It's not even that old, but that's old now. Well, yeah, no, it's, it's kind of old. It's now. got its own patina now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I uh, years ago, um, the guys in the Fender Custom Shop uh, came up to my house when. Uh, 
we're doing the Stones. We do yeah. Lodge, and they made a guitar for Keith. And, he, and, he, and, the, guy, and the guy is Jay Black. Yeah. Worked there, and he's really good. With oh, wood. is this the one that he made exactly off that old blonde uh, telly? That Keith no, did? that was later. This oh. was just he made him a guitar, made oh. him a Strat, but it's all new looking. And yeah. Keith said, it's, "It's great, but I'm never going to play this thing." And I said to him, "I said, can't you?" Like uh, we we had a mic cabinet that was like some uh, something I got over at Arte de Mexico, right? yeah, yeah, and, uh, and uh, I'm sure it was two years old, but it looked like it was three hundred years yeah. old. So can't you just distress a guitar? And the guy came back a couple years later. He said, "You gave me the idea for the Fender Relic series, so here is Relic number one." And he made me a precision bass, yeah, with all 1963 parts on it, uh-huh. and, uh, and and. And it's really good bass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it says Relic One on it, and that was 1993. So now it's older, and now it's getting its own patina. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And so it, it's not only a Relic uh, manufactured right, Relic, right, but right. it's actually got some. Uh, yeah, some yeah. Grease on it. Yeah, I don't, I don't, like, I, I, I have not bought a, a really old thing. I, these amps are. That's a, that's an original Champ there. That's like yeah, a, a beautiful, 58, yeah. 57. Are you playing through the Bell and Howell? That's a that's that's a, that's you know his uh, Blake's guy. Yeah, Blake's yeah, guy. Yeah. that's his. That's his. He yeah. lives around the corner, Austin. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. What's his, is that his name? I don't, I don't know the guy's name, but they're Fuck. really good. I I have one. He, Blake gave me one. Yeah, that's gonna bother me. I don't want to like. Right, give let's the, get him. Yeah, yeah. Give the guy short sh- short. Uh, is it Austin? Austin Hooks. Yeah, right. Yes, Austin Hooks. Yeah, he lives around the corner, and this yeah. is the first one. This is the prototype. I don't. Wow. I don't know if he knows I still have it. <laughs> but he said because he would fix. The, he he fucking fixed that old champ for me yes, or that yes. old uh, yeah. deluxe. And that's a sixty-five champ. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. But he like you know he said you know he wanted me to play through one of these. So he, this is like the one his dad made the cabinet, and wow. he gave it to me. He said I just keep it so I don't sell it. So wow. I don't, like so I I've, I just had it. It's been well, years now. Now he's gonna know where it is. <laughs> you can have it back. <laughs> so they sound, I don't quite understand it. I don't understand how to work it. This seems to be, it seems complicated to me. So. You mean like? Well, I mean, you plug inside and then there's two plug, there's two yeah. holes and I don't know what, you know, what one oh, so knob means or what. I play it sometimes. Just mess with it. All right. Yeah. yeah I, <laughs> I don't do enough messing because I'm, because yeah. every time I mess with something, I'm like, someone knows how to do this. Yeah. And I don't know, you know. No, but that's, the, all the all the cool stuff came from having no one around who knew how to do it. And it really is, you know, like, yeah. I listen to the, like Motown records, yeah. right? And. I knew those guys. I got to play with a lot of those guys when I lived in Detroit. And they were jazz musicians who were trying to imitate New York R&B records, and they got it wrong. Yeah. And they came up with something at least as good and <laughs> as enduring. You know? Yeah. But it, sure. it was because there was no one around to tell them how to do it. All right. Well, that, that's inspiring to me. <laughs> okay. I'm not, I'm not going to be uh, uh, daunted. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go fearless into just playing in my garage by myself. All right, Don. Good talking to you. A pleasure, man. So that was Don was pretty interesting stuff about the Stones, right? Do you want me? I, I how's everybody? Okay, is it everybody okay? Um, so I'm gonna play a little guitar. You all right? Everybody all right? I'm just gonna do some wah wah and get out. All right, so the guy can smear cement on my house. Okay, I'll do this. I'm gonna do it. Wow, wow, wow. 
Boomer lives.